Welcome to Shakespeare and Pals, episode 16. Loves, labors, lost. Loves, labors, lost. Getting into the more obscure ones of Shakespeare's, those deep cuts. But we in this podcast have committed ourselves to doing all of Shakespeare's plays in chronological order, so we can neither skip nor push this to the end. We are right at Loves, Labours, Lost, and Sophie. I can tell that you have a deep, deep historical connection to this play. Tell the audience about it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, I actually... I actually, okay, so the closest that I've ever had to a Shakespearean uh, play thus far was either I did it at school or uh, there was a pop cultural reference I didn't know was Shakespearean until I watched a thing, which was, as you know, Richard III. This time, uh, very, very clear connection in that I watched Doctor Who, like with David Tennant in it. Um, and they went, there was one episode where they went to Shakespearean England, London, meet Shakespeare. Um, and Shakespeare is like manipulated into making a summoning circle at the globe, um, while writing Love's Labours One. And, uh, unfortunately the, the ending of the the stopping of the alien witches coming was stopped by a disarmament charm of a very well-known uh turf authors you know wizarding school book so remembering that made me die a little bit inside but you know it's that's it's how it is things age things age badly (laughs) Like the entirety of Doctor Who, but that's mainly for aesthetic reasons. Yeah, no, at least the doc, the Doctor is sincere usually. And my relationship to Love's Labour's Lost is nothing, nothing at all. I am one of those people who has multiple times tried to read the entirety of Shakespeare, and I have gotten to some of his more obscure ones. Like I don't think. If you asked a thousand people on the street, I doubt any of them have read Pericles, but I have. But Love's Labour's Lost never got around to it. This was just something that I didn't even know the plot until I did this one. So that just goes to show that even for people who consider themselves uh, aficionados of the bard, it is you need to be put into a position where it's shoved in your face. And... (laughs) I'll put it like this. Uh, Unfairly, this is pretty good. I will will give it this... I will give this play the honorary title of the most offensively poetic, the most aggressively poetic that we've had in a while, if ever. I will say that last month we did Titus Andronicus, And that is a play that, very popular in its own time, for the next hundred years, hundreds of years afterwards, people hated it because it went against their ideas of decorum. They didn't like the cannibalism. They didn't like the uh, incest. They didn't like all these awful things in it. Love's Labour's Lost also 
a play very popular in its own day, but for the next hundreds of years, people hated it because it had something just as bad as cannibalism, rhymes and puns. I'm genuinely impressed Shakespeare survived this long if, you know, puns and rhymes were so, so hated. <laughs> this is it's in every goddamn play. It's in every play. I, I think it's mainly the idea that it's happening so often. It is happening in almost every single line. That is true. This is that Edward is Capel in like the 18th century saying, Rhyme, when this play appeared, was thought a beauty of the drama and heard with singular pleasure by an audience who but a few years before had been accustomed to all rhyme and the measure we call doggerel and are so much offended with had no such effect upon the ears of the time. But whether blemishes or no, or however the matter be, which we have brought to exculpate him, neither of these articles can with any face of justice be alleged against love's labours lost, seeing they are both to be met with in several other plays, the genuineness of which has not been questioned by anyone. So essentially this guy is saying that, oh, it was of its time, of its time. In those days, those naive people, they loved rhyme. Of course, we don't, but those are savages in the past. <laughs> oh, my God. Francis, this is Francis Gentleman in 1774. He certainly wrote more to please himself than to divert or inform his readers and auditors. Yes, Francis Gentleman, certainly saying that Shakespeare's being a bit self-indulgent in this one. Yeah, I mean... Is he being self-indulgent? Okay, no, there are some, there are some characters that made me go, why do you exist? Who are you? How are you in remotely relevant? And the answer, and I just could not figure it out. So in that, yeah, so there are like aspects that feel very, very self-indulgent. But, um... Yeah, I will very briefly uh, brush over the biography because mainly in the biography in the pieces that I've looked at for this work and those works are Anna Beer, Peter Levy, Peter Ackroyd, S. Schoenbaum, Jonathan Bates. The references will be in the episode description. One of the main pieces of interest for this play is that it does feel like an in-joke. It does feel like Shakespeare is writing for a bunch of educated upper-class men and either he is, you know, gently ribbing them in a sort of general satire, or he is making fun of specific people that they know. And a lot of scholarship has been spent, some would say wasted, on trying to figure out just which character is which. So maybe, Sophie, when you're what is this character for? Maybe that's just them saying, oh, that's John. We hate John. <laughs> okay. Then, then I can accept that. Or, you know, maybe Shakespeare had more than one insufferable teacher and was like, you know what? This is how I'm going to get back at them. I'm going to write them in my play and I'm going to make them as insufferable as I remember them being. And more. Because why not? Act One 
Love's labors lost begins with the king of Navarre, the king of Navarre and three of his mates, Dumaine, Longueville, and Byron. These are all meant to be French names, but I'm not quite sure how an Elizabethan Englishman would have pronounced them. So I am just going to say the king, Dumaine, Longueville, and Byron. The king has a plan. The king wants to take his three mates and dedicate the next three years to learning. They want to lock themselves up in a castle and vow never to have any petty physical pleasure like beer, drink, or most importantly, women. They will have no intercourse with women for three years. They will lock themselves up and do their study. The only person in their group who finds this to be a bit too far is the man Byron, who is also coincidentally one of the few characters with a personality. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. But there is also a B-plot where there is Armado. Armado, a miles glorioso, a vain, glorious, pretentious kind of soldier who is in love with a peasant wench called Jaconetta, and it is a love triangle with a stupid peasant called Costard, and Armado and Costard, Armado brings in Costard because Costard has been caught tossing the hay with Jaconetta, and the rest of it is Armado trying to get with Jaconetta. I'll admit that the plot of this, this B-plot, Mm, not it doesn't really go anywhere, really. It's there is frankly not a lot of plot at all in the whole of the play. But even given that, Sophie, did I miss anything? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, yeah, no. In terms of happenings, this is a very slim play. Slim play, despite being one of his longest early comedies. Which is but wild. Um, and just really goes to show how some characters did not need to exist. I will say that some of the characters, like I, we can agree, Sophie, that the King, Dumaine, and Longueville, they're pretty much just the same character. And in the Princess's Party, this is the next act, but in the Princess's Party, uh, the princess has a personality. Rosaline has a personality. The other two girls, they're just sort of the same girl. Uh, but I would say that part of the comedy of this comes from all of these characters acting the same. Like, if you see one person who's in love, you can sort of enter into it. You can sort of say, oh, look at him, he's in love. But when three characters act the exact same way in the exact same rituals of love, the exact same stereotypes of love, it automatically looks ridiculous, but the repetition makes it ridiculous. So I'd say that having these identical characters, three identical characters, that's what makes it funny. Yeah, I guess. I, but I think, um, well, are the prince and the and his mates the same character? Like, I agree that Longueville and the other one? <laughs> Dumaine? Dumaine or Dumaine? Dumaine? Yeah, Dumaine or Dumaine or Dumaine. Like, yeah. um, Longville and, um, and I'm just going to call him the other one because I think I find that even funnier than his actual real name. Um, uh, definitely the same person. I feel like the prince is 
just a little bit dumber. He's just a dumb boy um, that just does not fully appreciate that life happens, society exists, and he is not removed from it. Because how much of a dreamer, cuckoo land, cloud boy do you have to be to be able to go, oh, I'm a prince, but I'm just going to lock myself away in a study and not deal with anything except books and my friends. And then, like, literally the next day, there's a princess coming from France. He says, what say you, lords? Why, this was quite forgot. So, oh, I knew I was meant to do something before I locked myself up for three years. My note literally says, what an incredible bellend. And it's not even like he is a, a scholar with his head in the clouds. You get the sense that when it comes to, oh, me and my friends, we want to study and uh, improve our minds. He is that sort of person who wants to become an intellectual while having no particular idea of what scholarship or being an intellectual is. Because he is, they don't really have any idea of what they're going to study. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, he, it's like this prince who is technically, like, written... His name is apparently meant to be Ferdinand or something, um, but he's never mentioned, but he's never called by name. He's just called the prince. Um, it's like Ferdinand has this image of a scholar in his head, maybe, you know, sitting against um, a windowsill, staring into the beautiful countryside while holding a book and maybe in a pipe in, in, in the other hand going, yes, I am learned. Not learned, learned. Yes. <laughs> like, um, like, um, it's almost like, um, people trying to become like an archeologist after watching, um, ba -ba -da -ba, ba -ba -da. yes, that one, Indiana Jones and not fully appreciating that it's actually a lot of days under the sun just gently scraping away and then brushing away dirt because you do not want to damage the thing that you're trying to dig up. And I, I would say that even if it was like the Indiana Jones fantasy, at least there, there is an idea of what they're going to study. Whereas here, Byron, Byron, who's always a bit more sceptical about all these things, he says... By yea or nay, sir, then I swore in death. What is the end of study? Let me know. And the king says, why? That to know which else we should not know. Now, that's not really an answer. He hasn't particularly said what they're going to study still. It's just so incredible. <laughs> yeah, like, I guess, like, he... I guess, like, say like what there isn't not to know. So it's almost like the the what is the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. And um, Byron's like, oh, forty two, cool. Now what else? <laughs> and Byron is basically saying, okay, yeah, that's all well and good. Yes, study, study, study. Uh, what's this about not having sex? What's this about not meeting any? It's and it's not even and like he says, come on, then I will swear to study so. To know the thing I am forbid to know, as thus to study where I well may dine, when I to feast expressly am forbid, or study where to meet some mistress fine, when mistresses from common sense are hid, or having sworn too hard a keeping oath, study and not break my troth, 
If study's gain be thus, and this be so, study knows that which yet it doth not know. Swear me to this, and I will ne'er say no. So he said, look, uh, I'll study with you, and I will uh, study hard, but, you know, I want food, I want women. Uh, you are going too far, sir. And to be honest, that is correct. Everything in moderation, people. It is, it, certainly the way the king sets this up and where they all set this up, it does feel like those New Year's resolutions where people say, oh, I'm going to go to the gym every morning. I'm going to pick up a new skill every week. I am going to read a book every hour. And you just think, you know, if you took all of these goals and you just made them 10% of what they are, just reduced them to 10%, uh, you might achieve something. But I'll say that um, Ferdinand is so obstinate about this. So right afterwards, um, so Ferdinand says, these be the stops that hinder study quite and train our intellects to vain delight. And which, you know, it's like, oh, no, these are the things that we need to do because, you know, we will be tempted by, you know, vain delight. And um, Byron's like, why? All delights are vain, but that most vain with which with pain purchased doth inherit pain, as painfully to pour upon a book to seek the light of truth, while truth the while doth falsely blind the eyesight of his look. He's basically just going to yammer on about how you're already being vain by trying to seek the truth. The light will blind you in its um, pursuit of light. Um etc etc and it's it's a, such a long thing and it's also so excruciatingly shakespearean um this is the this is probably the worst possible play to give to school students because it's already rough for me and i'm in my 30s now okay i'm okay mm, yes no i am i am in my 30s now i probably shouldn't be admitting that to the internet but whatever um and at least i have patience um shall but, i remove that uh, shall i edit that out of the podcast sophie you were I'll, I'll, think about it. I'll think i'll i'll think about it but yeah no it's just, at least like at my age and and i'm doing this of my own free will even if i'm unhappy about it <laughs> um i i felt my brain just slowly lose its sheen like it used to be so wrinkly and but then it just became smooth and dull, like a little pebble that's been out of the river too long um, as I kept reading it because I was losing my mind, just going, Shakespeare, what are you doing? What are you doing to me? What is this man saying? I don't know. Um, until eventually, you know, Dumaine and Longueville are like, oh, wow, he's being so clever about basically going against studying and yes, they're sort of very contemptuous. Like the king says, how well he's read to reason against reading. And Dumaine says, proceeded well to stop all good proceeding. And Longueville says, he weeds the corn and still lets grow the weeding. So they're being, they're sort of saying, oh yes, you're very good at sophistry. You're very good at being just smart enough to argue yourself into never thinking about anything ever again. Yeah. And, um... Oh, no, the more important paragraph is, well, say I am, why should proud summer boast before the birds have any cause to sing? Why should I joy in any abortive birth? At Christmas I no more desire a rose than wish a snow in May's newfangled mirth. 
but like of each thing that in season grows. So you to study now, it is too late. Climb over the house to unlock the little gate. And Ferdinand, well, sit you out. Go home, Byron. Adieu. Um, Byron basically says, you know, just let's just, let's enjoy the things that are actually within uh, scope, I guess. You know, then wishes snow in May's newfangled mirth. I wouldn't expect snow to fall during May when it's And also, it's like, you know, we're young men. Let's not waste three years of our lives locked away from women. It's our May time. Yeah, like genuinely, like, um, let's not go too far. And Ferdinand, our pouty prince, says, fine, you can go home. You're not playing with us anymore. It's like, God. Terrible. I don't like Ferdinand. I don't like this prince, our pouty boy. It is that classic setup of romantic comedy where there's what essentially this is the much ado about nothing. There's someone who says, I'll have nothing to do with love. Ah, well, the next four acts will show you differently. At least, at least, um, that one had taste. That one was actually kind of cute. This one just makes me wonder, Ferdinand, are you an idiot? Oh, because um, actually there's a really um, good um, idiom um, descriptor um, in Japanese, which basically direct translation is, your head is a flower garden. Um, oh, otama gao Ohana Batake, is that it? Yeah, yeah, Atamaga Ohana Batake. Like, it's just so pointlessly optimistic, I guess. Um, so you don't think, you just are, and you're cute, and you, you don't think heavy thoughts. Because if you do, your flower garden will perish under the footfalls of common sense. And Ferdinand has a grand, beautiful, but such a fragile flower garden in his brain. It's incredible, actually. He is certain, and that fragile flower garden is destroyed the second that uh, four somewhat attractive women walk in. Mm-hmm. Just the heavy, just the dainty footfalls of four beautiful ladies just crush his silly silly attempts at being a scholar why does doll exist why does what exist why do so many other characters exist in this play they all add a little something they all add a little comedy to it i feel as i've explained i think that the multiple men are just there so that their eventual fall into being, you know, just lovesick fools. The repetition of it makes it funnier. Whereas with the women, yeah, the women could have got a bit more character. Mm. On the point of uh, what we've been saying about how the king, he's like, oh, we'll be scholars, we'll keep ourselves away from women, and we'll put ourselves in the pure realm of the intellect. 
in Jonathan Bates, Jonathan Bates, he wrote a book called How the Classics Made Shakespeare. He finds in this a kind of repudiation of stoicism, where stoicism is like, you know, tame your emotions, stay away from your emotions, obey pure reason, that sort of thing. In this one, we have Byron and essentially the plot saying that, uh, no, no, the emotions won't be put down like that. You can't just vow yourself to stay away from love and emotions. They will force you to act, and probably it's for the best that you do let a little uh, romantic love into your life. That's good for you. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And um, in the next part of Act 1, Scene 1, um, Ferdinand tries to crush the the potential for love, even around other people who haven't, you know, signed the oath um which i guess is where costard comes into play and Why did you like costard did you like uh, th these new comedy characters that come in you know dull costard uh these characters armado i genuinely don't understand like costard like at least in this scene he sort of makes sense he's a foil um, and Moth technically is a foil to Armado. I think Moth comes in, in the next, uh, oh yes, yeah. the next uh, scene. But I would say that, you know, uh, I am someone who does not particularly like Shakespeare's clowns that much because their job is just to come on and be a sort of characterless fool, just making jokes and being sort of stupid, but having no basis in character. Whereas most comedy characters in this, it is very much here as a stereotype, and the stereotype's character is making jokes that naturally arise out of its character type like a costard he is he's not just a fool he is someone who is he's he's been done for a crime he has done the crime and he is smart enough to want to get out of being done for that crime but he's also too stupid to do it appropriately that's the joke about him let me find some of the lines about it uh ah so the king says ah so he has been accused of going with a lady called Jacanetta. And the king says, what say you to this? And Costard says, eh, sir, I confess the wench. Did you hear the proclamation? I do confess much of the hearing of it, but little of the marking of it. It was proclaimed a year's imprisonment to be taken with a wench. I was taken with none, sir. I was taken with a damsel. Well, it was a proclaimed damsel. Then this, sir. Uh, uh, no doubt either, sir. She was a virgin. And so basically he thinks that, okay, I, I can get out of this if I say that, no, it, it was a virgin, not knowing that being caught with a virgin sort of makes it worse. So that is, he's, he, uh, uh, and then it's also like, uh, uh, it is so varied so, for it was proclaimed virgin. If it were, sir, I deny her virginity. I was taken with a maid. This maid will not serve your turn, sir. <laughs> this maid will serve my turn, sir. And I, I do like you get a lot of hints of his character. Like the, the king says, you know, it's wrong to be caught with, uh, it's wrong to be caught with the damsel. And the guy says, okay, well, then it wasn't a damsel. It was a virgin. Well, no, no, the, that doesn't matter in the law, sir. It's a, it doesn't matter if it's a virgin. You, you were caught with a virgin. So, okay, then I wasn't caught with a virgin. She had sex before. She was a maid. 
okay, no, you still don't get it. You, this is still illegal. It's like, this maid will not serve your turn. And then he says, ah, this maid will serve my turn. So he, he can't, Costa at the very end, he can't help himself. He has to make a little sexual joke saying, oh no, this maid will serve my turn, sir. And he very quickly realizes that, oh no, I shouldn't have made that sex joke. Uh, I, it, I find that this, I mean, this is a very very sort of 1960s British comedy kind of play. That sort of, oh, matron, mm, that sort of thing. I did actually like stare at some of these lines going, "Is was this Shakespearean um, Monty Python? Like a lot of, it's as good as a doornail. This parrot is no more. I'd definitely say it's more Shakespearean carry on. Yeah, uh, yeah. Either way, like it was just, it was just, some of it was so, so wordy, so wordy. Don't, don't give this to teenagers. Nothing happened. Can we go to the princess? That's in the next act, Sophie, so I'm afraid not. No! <laughs> Scene two, Moth. Moth is a good boy. I like Moth. Moth has the sassiness um, and the, vague contempt for adults that sounds moth has the vague contempt for adults that is that seems very uniquely teenager in his scenes he is doing a sort of back and forth you do a pun i do a pun thing with armado and shakespeare has done this before in his plays like in two gentlemen of verona but i think i like it better here because like in two gentlemen of verona it was pretty much two characters making jokes to each other, just making, I say something, you pretend to misunderstand, and it's like, ah, oh, ha, ha, we're, we're having fun together. Whereas in this one, Moth is deliberately trying to frustrate Armado. He's deliberately trying to say, look, I'm cleverer than you, and look, you can barely argue against me. I like that friction to the bickering and the back and forth to it. Yeah. <sighs> Why does Don Adriano de Armado exist in this space? And not and I don't mean that as in exist in this play because that's obvious. William put him there for for the lulls, for the JKs. Um, but I'm more thinking, why does he exist inside Fer, um, Navarre's Ferdinand's court? Because I think explicitly. Navarre says, oh, he's a funny idiot. <laughs> it's like that thing from Kung Pao, Enter the Fist. This is uh, John. We trained him wrong as a joke. <laughs> Terrible. And this is kind of why I also, this is also why I'm not a huge fan of The Prince, our pouty boy. Because for someone who has lofty goals towards being a you know, a women-free, very high-minded scholar. He's a child that makes fun of, you know, of grown adults. Okay, he might not be a child child, but he has, like, he's a man-child that makes fun of other adults. Like, that's very immature. Not a huge fan. Don't like him. <laughs> With Armado, I do find that Shakespeare tries a little parody of a soliloquy where we have armado he he is in love with jacanetta but he says oh no i mustn't be in love with her i must uh, subdue this love in me 
And also, you, even in this one, you do get the sort of facile schoolboy use of argumentative tricks. I do affect the very ground, which is base, her shoe, which is baser, her foot, which is basis. So base, baser, basis this is a common rhetorical trick where you use the same different forms of the word. And then there's isocolon, where he says, there is no evil angel but love. Yet was Samson so tempted, and he had an excellent strength. Yet was Solomon so seduced, and he had a very good club. So this is also a very common rhetorical trick. So he's writing in a very conventional schoolboy rhetorical manner it would be like in a modern play if there was some character who came up and started using the teal diagram like he's trying to convince himself into doing something by saying topic sentence evidence elaboration link to the next thing i'm going to think that sort um, of thing that's oh no <laughs> um, um i'm just gonna um i will say though um the great men that fell in love and therefore Amado is going to fall in love, they're all bad examples. They're all the worst possible examples for falling in love. Everyone yes, in, Shakespeare, in Shakespeare, he always has, when characters say, oh, I shall love like a Dido, I shall love like, uh, not Romeo and Juliet, but it's, they always choose the uh, something that ends horribly. Yeah, Samson, he loved a lady, she cut his hair and he was enslaved by the enemies for at least like a good few decades before his hair grew back and therefore his strength. And then he toppled that nation and himself with it. It was a, it was a murder suicide, I guess. Um, so that happened. And Hercules, after killing off his wife and child in, because of Hera in, in his defense, um, Hercules remarried um, Deianira, Deianira, uh, genuinely unsure how to pronounce her name, but it means man destroyer or destroyer of husbands. Don't emulate their loves. It is, uh, you would have to admit it's in character for Armada to have this kind of, uh, <laughs> He's going to girls that are bad for him. <laughs> Terrible. But just on the topic of this being you know, a comedy, a rather light-hearted comedy, it does have that... It's that style of comedy where the characters have no depth. You, you see a character... They have one character trait, you know exactly what they're about, and then the rest of the jokes are just them following what they are about around other people who are about different things, seeing all these one-dimensional characters knock off one another. And I'd say it's pretty good at that. That, that yeah, no, that is quite good. They're just enjoying the pretty colours and the pimples going... It's like, yes, yes, this is, this is a good play. This is a good pinball machine. Although, given you know, given the language, it's like a pinball machine, but you need to understand the Gaussian distribution to understand all of the little pinballs dropping in different places all the time. The mathematical understanding what what the hell is going on in this very specific pinball machine? It's like that GIF with the white lady just eyes flitting around as like equations, like cross the screen. It's that, but poetry. Yes, it is uh, the. When you understand, when you can laugh at this play, that's when you've galaxy brained. <laughs> <laughs>
two and act three. These two acts are one scene each, so we're going to rush through both of them. Act two and three. The princess and her ladies and one of her manservants arrive at the king's castle because her family owes the king of Navarre money. But the king has said, no, no, can't have any ladies in. You ladies, you wait outside. You wait outside our castle. Ah, but the ladies flirt with the men and they are going to wheedle their way inside, even though currently they are locked out of the castle. That's act two. Act three, we return to that lovable soldier fool Armado. Armado loves Jaconetta, and so Armado gives Costard a letter to send to Jaconetta. Ah, but Byron, Byron, he admits that he loved Byron, remember, the guy who is the more cynical and realistic friend of the king. He loved the princess's friends, a girl called Rosalind. He loves Rosalind, and so he writes out a letter, and he says, who shall I get to deliver this letter? Ah, I'll get Costar to deliver this letter. You can see how the farce is going to go, can't you? Costard has two letters, one from Amado to Giaconetta, and one from Byron to Rosaline. Oh, are these going to get mixed up? I wonder. That is all that happens in Act 2 and 3. Have I missed anything, Sophie? No, no. I cannot keep stressing how thin in plot this play is, but also kind of almost because of that, it's very dense in text. It is spinning around the same point a lot. It is drawing out as many couplets as it can from a single point. Like, uh, Princess of France just talks a lot. Everyone else also talks a good, good deal. Um, some of them not very good at expressing personality, as you have already mentioned. Um, Ferdinand is a dumb boy. And I hate that Act 2, Scene 1, has a taste of plot, a taste of intrigue, of potential conflict, and nothing comes out of it. I mean, it does have some bit of conflict. The men want to stay inside and the women are giving their come-hither looks. No. I'm talking about the, the debt. It is certain... This play, Shakespeare, you know, in Shakespeare, even in his comedies, there has to be some overtone of death. And in this play, at the very beginning, they mention death, and so Shakespeare has to put the death in there. And this play... The princess is here, her father's bedridden, her father's sick, and this play is very sort of happy, very freewheeling, but the ending of the play, her father dies, and then the fun ends. So that is, Shakespeare just can't help himself. He he can't just be happy for two seconds, there has to be death on either end of it. Mm. And also, um, the debt as well. Um, The Ferdinand at the, the, the oh, Ferdinand goes, 
Madam, your father here doth intimate the payment of a hundred thousand crowns, being but the one half of an entire sum dispersed by my father in his wars, but say that he or we, as neither have, received that sum, yet this remains unpaid a hundred thousand more, in surety of the which one part of Aquitaine is bound to us, although not valued to the money's worth. If then the king your father will restore but that one half which is unsatisfied, we will give up our right in Aquitaine, and hold fair friendship with his majesty. But that it seems he little purposeth, for here he doth dem for here he doth demand to have repaid a hundred thousand crowns, and not demands on payment of a hundred thousand crowns, to have his title live in Aquitaine, which we much rather had depart withal and have the money by our father lent than Aquitaine so gelded as it is. Dear princes, were not his request so far from reasons yielding, your fair self should make a yielding gainst some reason in my breast and go well satisfied to France again. It kind of smacks of um of um hospitality talk. Yeah. Where someone is saying is is saying a thing that he, that the staff member is pretty sure is objectively wrong, but is not allowed to be rude to the paying customer. And um Princess, you do the king, my father, too much wrong, and wrong the reputation of your name, in so as unseeming to confess receipt of that which hath so faithfully been paid. So basically, the princess is giving a letter to Pouty Boy that they've paid and would they want the money back? While Pouty Boy is saying, Um, you haven't paid, so you can't get the money back for something you haven't paid. And also, like, there's this other stuff handed in with this money, so you're being very rude to me right now. Um, and Pouty Boy is very, very unaware of himself. So very self-unaware that he is being very rude right now. God. Um, but yeah, um, so basically they argue a little bit. With that line about her saying, we have paid everything you need, I was wondering, was the implication there that I'll give you a dowry? Is that the implication? Um, I don't think so. I, my understanding of that um, was that the king would have come himself if he wasn't deathly ill um, to basically say, hey, we've paid the money. So give us um, our sovereignty back, it sounds like, because it seems to me that um, Aquitaine, da, 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 so Ferdinand says, to have his title live in Aquitaine. But that one half which is unsatisfied, we will give up our right in Aquitaine, or Aquitaine, and hold fair friendship with his majesty. So, like, it seems to me that Pouty Boy's dad and Princess, I'm going to name her Peach, like Princess Peach of France, Peaches are delicious. Oh, yes. Um, Princess Peach and Pouty Boy. <laughs> and she's just as much as a tease. No. No, we are not doing that. <laughs> but anyway, um, like Princess Peach is insisting that um, they paid and we should be, they should be having Aquitaine back um, in title. But Ferdinand is saying, no. None of that money's reached us. So. And I think, I think he's also implying that, that, um, like, we'd give it to you if it wasn't for the principal. 
you know, which we much rather had to part with all and have the money by our father lent than Aquitaine so gelded as it is. Like, we understand that you're ma we're making you overpay for a land we don't even want, but it's the principle of the thing, isn't it? Mr. Scholar. Ass. I do like how in this comedy, you know, there's a commonplace that in Shakespeare's comedies, the women are allowed to be strong. Whereas in his tragedies, they're meant to be demure, respectable sort of things. Whereas in comedies, they can just be sharp-tongued. Um, and this is a good thing for them. And the princess, she makes only the barest attempts to be polite. She does the most... She, she does cover what she's saying a bit, but she is quite uh, free with what she says to him. Oh, yeah. I think she has every right to be because, you know, she should be let in. She's a god... She's... She's a princess. I do. Like, when it comes to you know her being forced to stay outside, I do like this as a kind of literary in joke, because in in the love poetry of the time, there was a very common metaphor for seduction, and that metaphor was of so you're a man and you are an invading army, and the woman is a city. So you are besieging a city. Besieging a city is like whether it is like trying to wear down a woman's defences so that you can eventually get with her. That's the metaphor of besieging. Except in this play, it is the women who are outside trying to wear down the men who are locked in the castle. So I like that. Uh, and there are other things in this where I think in the next act the ladies go out hunting. And now that's another common love metaphor where in love poetry, the woman is the deer and the man is the hunter hunting the deer. Uh, so I do, I do like that in this one, the women are put in the man's role in these literalized metaphors of courtship. The women are trying to wear the men down in this. And what's even funny, uh, arguably, is that they're not even doing the wooing. It's, it's the men who are being who are pretend who think they're being besieged by the temptresses when really they're the ones gasping for their touch and their you presence, did, giving them the tools later. You, you didn't think that uh, in Act Two, Scene One, there was a lot of flirting going on, like uh, Rosaline and Byron. Byron says, "Lady, I will commend you to my own heart. Pray you, I do my commendation. I would be glad to see it." I would you heard it groan. Is the fool sick? Sick at heart. Alack, let it blood. Would that do it good? My physic says I. Will you prick it with your eye? Non point with my knife. Now God save thy life and yours from long living. I cannot say Thanksgiving. So that is a good little, you know, we, oh, yes, we both know what we want from this. Let's, uh, but, you know, we're not, we're going to play a bit hard to get with each other. So you, yeah. that was sort of good flirting, wasn't it? Yeah, no, that is actually good flirting. Um, even before that, um, Byron says, did I not dance with you in Brabant once? Did I, and Rosalind, did not I dance with you in Brabant once? I know you did. How needless was it then to ask the question? You must not be so quick. Tis long of you that spur me with such questions. Your wit's too hot, it speeds too fast, twilf, twill tire. Not till it leave the rider in the mire. What time of day? The hour that fools should ask. Now fare before your mask. 
their fall the face of covers, and send you many lovers? And I a man, so you be none. Nay, then will I be gone. And I almost feel like this is happening in the background, just like when, you know, the stage is every, everywhere else, the stage is dark, and it's just these two under a single light, having this little quick rip, um, parry and reposting of words, and then the stage goes bright again, and Ferdinand and the princess are arguing, and then the one, the part that you read happens again where there's just light and darkness and they're having the private little moment of heated, witty bants. Yes, a little bit of uh, Benedict and Beatrice in the background. Mm-hmm. When it comes to uh, analysing Shakespeare's plays, there was a, there was a uh, relatively famous Shakespearean critic called G. Not G. Willow Wilson, that's the uh, writer of Miss Marvel. No, it's someone else. G. Wilson Knight. His attitude towards uh, analysing Shakespeare's plays was not to look at individual characters. He felt that Shakespearean criticism had gone too far into looking at character psychology. He said we should actually zoom out and try to understand the atmosphere of the play, the overriding atmosphere of the play. He actually used a metaphor from quantum physics that we shouldn't look at the atoms, we should look at the quantum field, which in the 1930s, good on him for keeping that much up to date with quantum physics. Uh, Well done, G. Wilson Knight. But anyway, looking at with this play, I definitely think that the meaning of this play is not really to be found in any of the characters. You're not going to find any deep psychology in any of the characters, which is why I think that looking at the trying to find the overall atmosphere of this play. The overall animating idea is for the best. And so I do think that this is a sort of a, to me, that overriding idea is that this is a freewheeling world where nothing is too serious. And I can't say it's sex positive. It's not sex positive because, you know, this isn't, <laughs> there's no sex involved. But I will say it is whatever is just before sex positive. It's a world where men and women can just flirt with each other, have woo each other, be a bit intimate with each other, and this is perfectly fine. This is a world where even if this is technically a naughty thing to do, it's something that is ultimately fine and fun for people to do. Yeah, no, this is generally a really fun play full of bants. I will give it that. It's still very paper thin. And um, if this was I feel like this would make a really good style of like uh, a sitcom almost, you know, where the one, I, I, I hesitate to say friends, but um, just having the, the ladies in one apartment and the dudes in one apartment and, oh no, now that quantum um, field analogy has made me think of the Big Bang Theory, but no, that no. Let's no, not the Big Bang Theory, please. This is more intelligent than that. Shall we move on to Act Three? Uh, yes, but I will say, um, I just want to um, point out one quick line from Princess Peach that um, really colors my perception of her for the rest of the play. Um, wait, where is it? Uh, roof or ceiling? 
so Ferdinand says, fair princess, welcome to the court of Navarre. And she replies, fair, I give you back again, and welcome, I have not yet. The roof of this court is too high to be yours, and welcome to the wild field, the wide fields, too base to be mine. So, um, she's basically saying, I'm not welcome in your court. This roof that is too high is God's. And welcome to the wide fields, too base to be mine. Like, so, and my, I can't welcome you to, the, to this court because this ain't my court either. It's too wild. It's the outside. She's very clear in the whole, you're not doing me my due diligence. Yes, he, she is... Yes, she is certainly allowed by the play to speak her mind. This, she's not viewed as a shrew for doing this, but she is saying, no, sir, you are, you are being wrong here. Let me yeah. in. Like, the rest of the play, for me, I just see her, like, looking at her beautiful nails and her beautiful bracelets, just going, ah, the things I suffer, the ladies I suffer, the men I suffer. Let's mock them. Let's go to Act 3, Scene 1, where, again, nothing happens. Act 3, Scene 1. We get back Armado, and really, really, again, nothing really happens here. It's mainly just Armado and Moth having a bit of a back and forth. It is... With this play, it is... The comedy doesn't really come from the situation in most parts. It comes from characters having these humorous back and forths. Yeah, no, just... The... The joy in this play is watching the characters bounce off of each other, and if you don't like them, that's a problem. And so, like, you have... Which is kind of why um, the pouty boy also needs to be... A, a, a flower head and an idiot just a very cute idiot that is way too optimistic and does not fully appreciate that our society and humanity and you know life exists outside of his cute little imagination um because if he was also an adult while in this play like you know a psychological adult um he would be so insufferable but no, this this man-child puppy boy who wants to be, you know, a real scholar without not fully appreciating what that even means um, is a saving grace and what makes his shenanigans forgivable. It has to be a very certain kind of person and a certain kind of character to make this work. This yeah, with these plays, you do need a certain level of uh, man-childness from at least some of the characters. Yeah. And Don Adriano de Armado does definitely not have that. He... he is so stupid that, you know, he is in a love rivalry with Costa. They both love Giaconetta. And he says, ah, I want to deliver this love letter to Giaconetta. Who shall I give this love letter to? Costard, can you give this to the lady we both love? And and also, like, Don Adriano de Amado, in literally the first act, first scene, had, um, had basically snitched on Costard as well. It was... 
Armado had written a letter for Dull to take with Costard to Pouty Boy to to basically snitch on his crime of, you know, being hot, just being hot and heavy or just hurt flirting with Jackie Neto either way. So the thing is, I kind of forgotten, I had literally forgotten about that until you just pointed that out because Costard seems to be very enthusiastic about doing the about doing the letter anyway. It is, like, it feels like, this definitely feels like if Shakespeare had another chance to draft it, that specific motivation would come into the farce of it. I mean, the farce is already that Costard is a moron, and so he delivers the letter to the wrong person. But I imagine that if Shakespeare had uh, tinkered with it a bit more, Costard would have said, oh, I hate this guy, so I'm deliberately going to give it to someone else. Yeah, no, it's just like, all I'm going to think, um, all, it just makes me think Costard must have had not that much thought or, you know, deep feelings about Jackie Netta and was like, you know what, I'll just, I'll just let it go kind of thing. I don't know. You get the I feeling that Jackanetta, she hit, I mean, Jackanetta was just someone he could tumble in the hay with. It's like, I'm not going to... <laughs> give my life to her. Armado can have her if he wants her that bad. Yeah, the, her green sleeves. She can have them. But most importantly, unless you have anything else to say about Armado, we can move on to Byron. Yeah, let's move on to Byron. So Byron, Byron, he's accepted that. Oh, now he's a believer. He's a believer in love. <laughs> He is in love with Rosalind and he says, Ah, Costard, I will give you this letter. And at least here I do find that him giving Costard a letter is somewhat believable because he can't deliver the letter himself because maybe someone will see him delivering a letter to uh, one of the princess's ladies, at which point the king will say, Oh, you naughty boy. And he can't give it to any servant of the king because those servants might then tell the king. So he needs to give it to a third party who maybe is a bit against the king, like Costard, who has previously been punished by the king. So this does make a bit of sense here in the, you know, in a farce, every individual action that contributes to the chaos, every individual action must make sense from a cause and effect lens. And I do feel this does make sense. Yeah. And, like, at least part of me wanted um, Pouty Boy to have this, um, what's the word, speech, just because... You mean the king? Yeah, because um, that would have been much funnier. Because, you know, just one act ago, he was going, nope, 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 I'm not going to fall in love. And then now he's just going, ah, god damn it just banging his head against the grass, going, what have I done? Oh, and I forsooth the love! I that have been loved with a very beetle to a humorous sigh, a critic nay, a nightwatch constable, a dominating pedant, oh, the boy, then whom no mortal so magnificent, this wimpled, whining, pure blind, wayward boy, the senior junior giant dwarf, Dan Cupid, regent of love rhymes, lord of folded arms, the anointed sovereign of sighs and groans, leader of all loiterers and malcontents, dread prince of Clackets, king of codpieces, soul and peritin, great general of trotting paradise, oh my little heart, and I to be a corporal on his field and wear his colours like a tumbler's hoop. 
what I, I love, I sue, I seek a wife. A woman that is like a German clock, still a repairing, ever out of frame, and never going a right to being a watch, but being watched that it may still go right. Like, if he was so upset and so salty about being in love, Ferdinand, the prince, would have made more sense. Byron was already okay. I mean, when... I feel that the uh, it is a slightly different kind of switch here. So for Byron, he's that sort of person who says, oh, I'll just uh, love him and leave him. It's just a bit of flirting. It's just a bit of fun with the opposite sex. Uh, but here he's saying, oh, no, it's no longer just friends with benefits. I do feel love for this person. That's the sort of switch that's going on in Byron. But I do agree that it might have been a bit more funny if it was the king who had been turned from saying no woman whatsoever. Oh, no, I love this woman. But yeah, I guess like um, Shakespeare kind of cottons on to that later. And that's how we get... Um... Much Ado About Nothing. Yes, it is. Uh, in Much Ado About Nothing, we get Benedict, who's like, oh, no, I will never get married. Oh, but now I meet this lovely fire-tongued woman. I mean, they knew each other already, didn't they? Yes, they did know each other. And uh, as time goes on, they learned that, no, they do like the, the, the barbs that come off each other. It's like, oh, no one else lets me feel alive as you. Ass butt. <laughs> Ass butt is genuinely the best insult to come out of a TV show. What TV show? Uh, I was about to say Spirited Away. <laughs> no, it's not. It's Supernatural. On that note, let us uh, move on to the next act. <laughs> Act four. The princess and her ladies go a-hunting. Ah, but while she is a-hunting, the princess sees Costard, and Costard gives her a letter. Not the letter from Byron to Rosaline, but no, it is the letter from Ar Armado to Giaconetta. The princess reads it, laughs, and forgets all about it. And then Rosaline and Boyette have an innuendo exchange, a lovely innuendo exchange, like a scene from Carry On. So that was that was nice, wasn't it, Sophie? Yep. <laughs> and we have your favourite scene next, Sophie, the one with the top quality comedy character Holofernes and his buddy Nathaniel, two pretentious schoolmasters who speak to each other in ten-syllable words and lots and lots of Latin inserts. Like, as a person who just, who has never claimed to be culturally, you know, what's the word? Uh, I was about to say culturally inept, and that's like, no, wait, what's the opposite of inept? Is there an ept? Adept. Adept, yes, that is correct. Uh, <laughs> I'm kind of proving my own point here. Um, like, as a person who is, like, not very adept at culture anyway, um, but I am, like, you know, semi-educated, This that was, listening to this was the most excruciating experience that I'd had in a while. And, you know, the... 
the actors know what they're doing. It's meant to be excruciating. They use that very nasally voice that just grinds your gears. You know, I do dine today at the father's of a certain pupil of mine, where if before a repast, it shall please you to gratify the table with a grace I will on my privilege I have with the parents of the foresaid child or pupil, undertake your benvenuto, where I will prove those verses to be very unlearned, neither savouring of poetry, wit, nor invention. I beseech your society. So, and it's like, oh, like they were using that voice for Holofernes, which made it actually worse in understanding him, by the way. Um, and I was like, why does this exist? I would scrap that scene entirely if I could. An editor would certainly cut this down a bit, because the only reason it's there is for the part of the plot where Costard is delivering the letter from... He thinks he is delivering the letter from Armado to Giaconetta, but it is actually the letter from Byron uh, to Rosaline. But uh, he had Costard has delivered the letter from Armado to Giaconetta, but Giaconetta, being a peasant girl, can't read. And so she goes to these two schoolmasters and says, can you read this for us? And the schoolmasters say, ah, this is a letter from Byron to Rosaline. I should snitch on him to the king. And that's how the next scene starts to send everything unraveling. Because what happens is that we have all of the different men, all of the different men sort of reading out love poetry to the, to the girls they love, and everyone else overhears them. And so then one by one, their love, their breaking of their oath of being sexless scholars comes out, and that is the comedy at the end of this act. Kill me. That can be done in time when I have my ticket to Japan to come to your house with a knife. <laughs> I will leave the door unlocked. But have a, or I could just pay your husband. Oh yeah, he could. I mean, he'll probably just take the money and not do it. So don't don't waste don't waste your money that way. Pay pay the airlines. Waste your money that way. <laughs> oh, so dumb. Was this the scene where they talk about the moon being like a month old? Yes, that was. Uh, I mean, that was sort of a good joke. Where that it's is uh, a good joke. That's actually a really good riddle, except they just ground it into the dirt to the point that I was like, I don't care about this. Actually, kind of clever. I mean, I liked it. In, in, I liked it in a sort of a. It was a sort of two level thing, where it's like Holofernes and Nathaniel. They are the most pretentious people imaginable, and so then you have. I think it was Costard, and Costard wants to say, "Oh, these two pretentious people. I'll show them how stupid they are." What it? What was five months when Adam was on the Earth, and what is but one week old now? And then the pretentious people answer the riddle they say that look we may be pretentious but we also know the answer to your stupid riddle but then they proceed to answer it in the most pretentious way possible ah <laughs> they may be learned but i guess it could be you know funny if um 
Sir Nathaniel and, and Holofernes were kind of wearing the same stuff as um, Ferdinand, um, Long, Long Boy and the other one, you know, very similar clothes. Um, and then the audience can go, oh, no, if the, if the boys don't fall in love soon, they're going to end up like Sir Nathaniel and Holofernes. Oh, no, boys, you don't want to end up like that. No. That would certainly be a way to uh, make them thematically relevant. That's that's the only reason. That's why I can. I can. That's the only reason why I would expect them to be there. It's just like they're meant to be the the Christmas Christmas future of of yes, our boys. You need, in order to get better at your life, you need to see yourself reflected in someone else. Awful. I would not. <laughs> Yes, uh, thankfully I will never be as as smart or pretentious as Sir Nathaniel and Holofernes, so I will avoid that fate. Yay! But surely you have seen someone who looks like your Christmas future. Ah, uh, I remember another, seeing a guy. I remember seeing. I went to a book club with this one guy, and he was. I was thinking, oh my god, you are just me. You are just me, but worse. I really should change my life. And then I saw on his phone that he had Tinder on that. And I think, oh, I I dread any woman who would ever... <laughs> I feel sorry for any woman who comes across you. <laughs> At the very oh. least, I will not inflict myself upon any woman. Anyway. Uh... Then what is this podcast? <laughs> oh, oh, you're a woman. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Damn it. Oh. Uh, but, the, but you're married, so you, you, using the magic spell of the ring, you have kept yourself safe from my grasp. <laughs> I am invisible to except to one. Oh, no. My husband is Sauron. But uh, this act does begin with the princess hunting. And as I said uh, before, this is a play in which love metaphors, poet poetical love metaphors are made literal. In love poetry, there's a lot of love poetry of the time about, you know, the woman is the deer and the man who is seducing the woman, he is the hunter. But in this one, the princess, she is the one going out and hunting. It's sort of like that scene in Battle Angel Alita, where Battle Angel Alita says to her boyfriend, I will give you my heart. It's like, oh no, that's, I know you love me. No, and then she pull, literally pulls out her beating heart and says, I will give you my heart. That sort of thing. <laughs> that's great stuff. 10 out of 10. Um, and I think this is this where... Um her knowing her own beauty but not necessarily being um like forest, yeah she's forester yeah. comes in and says hereby upon the edge of yonder coppice i a stand where you may make the fairest shoot and the princess says i thank my beauty i am fair that shoot and thereupon thou speaks the fairest shoot and then forester pardon me madam for i meant not so and princess what, what? First praise me, and again say no? Oh, short-lived pride, not fair, alack for woe. 
And Forrester, yes, Madam Fair, Fair? Nay, never paint me now. Where fair is not, praise cannot mend the brow. Here, good my glass, take this for telling true. Fair payment for foul words is more than due. Mm, no, nothing but fair, is that what you inherit? See, see, my beauty will be saved by merit. Oh, heresy is in fair fit for these days. A giving hand, though foul, shall have fair praise. But come the bow, now mercy goes to kill, and shooting well is then accounted ill. Thus will I save my credit in the shoot. Not wounding, pity would not let me do it. If wounding, then it was to show my skill, that more for praise than purpose meant to kill. So whatever she does, she does it on purpose, and she is hot while doing it, baby. Yeah, I mean, like from today's perspective, this is very sort of relatively you know, like, she's not saying, oh, I am hot shit. She is not saying that I am the hottest lady imaginable. But for a time period, when even today is a time period where you're meant to be humble, uh, but that she is allowed to acknowledge, no, I am beautiful. I am a pretty woman. Uh, this, it is sort of refreshing that you probably wouldn't find this in any of Shakespeare's quote-unquote serious romances. But in his comedy, we can let a woman acknowledge that she is attractive. Yeah. And you know what? She's doing it in a very classy way. And I like it. Like, if I couldn't, you know, be this confident about my own beauty, this would be a great life to live. <laughs> Although I do like that he, even though she is allowed to have this healthy pridefulness, they do let her also be the butt of jokes. And they do let her be at a loss for words. even at the loss for words with Costard, uh, because, you know, you know, she is a person who likes to uh, tease the staff. You know, with the Forester, she's sort of making him, construing all of his words so that he is saying something outrageous to her, and she likes seeing him squirm. But then Costard comes in, and she tries to do the same thing with him. So Costard comes in and says, oh, God ding you all, pray you, which is the head lady? Thou shalt know her, fellow, by the rest that have no heads. Uh, which is the greatest lady, the highest, the thickest and the tallest. And the thickest and the tallest, it is so, truth is truth. And your waist, mistress, uh, were as splendour as my wit. Uh, one of these maids, uh, girdles for your waist should be fit. Are you not the chief woman? You are the thickest here. And the princess says, what's your will, sir? What's your will? So he, she is trying to tease Costard, and she's, and, but then he makes a, a rather clever, you know, relatively clever fat joke about her. And then she's like, oh, shut up, sir. Just tell me what, what you're here for. Go on. Like, that is a good uh, little exchange. Yeah. And like, she's not even like that mad about it. Um, she's just like, oh, she's she just more of a, it feels more like, a, oh, you got me good. Tell me what you're here for. Come on. Kind of instead of a genuinely huffy kind of offense taken. So, um, yeah, I like her. She's great. <laughs> she has the privilege of having one of the four personalities in this play. Yes. And arguably the best one. But anyway. Um, uh, I feel a little bit sorry for uh, Don Adriano de Armada in this very next uh, moment because Boyette. I do oh, yeah. like, yeah, when it comes to him reading out this thing, I do like it because you get, you really get the sense of uh, Armado as being the most pretentious and arrogant person imaginable because he is 
writing a love letter. He does sort of understand the nature of a love letter, which is that you're meant to put yourself below your lover, except he is too vain and too arrogant to ever put himself below his lover. Uh, like, let me read out the part. So he says, and he it was that might rightly say, weni widi wiki, which is to anathematize in the vulgar, base and obscure vulgar, we delicet. He came, see, and overcame. He came, one, see, two, overcame, three. Who came? The king. Why did he come? To see. Why did he see? To overcome. To whom came he? To the beggar. So he's already saying that I, in this metaphor, I am the king. You are the beggar. You, my lover, are the beggar. What saw he? The beggar. Who overcame he? The beggar. The conclusion is victory on whose side? The king's. The captive is enriched on whose side? The beggar's. The catastrophe is a nuptial on whose side? The king's. No, on both. In one or one in both. I am the king, for so stands the comparison. Thou the beggar, for so witnessest thy lowliness. So he's calling, so he's both patronising his lover by saying, you are so stupid I need to explain this metaphor, and also emphasise size and no i am the king you are the lowly goddamn beggar shall i command thy love i may shall i enforce thy love i could shall i entreat thy love i will so he's basically in these love things you're meant to sort of say that oh you have all the power my love i am a worthless little worm you could destroy me with your pinky, but no, he is saying that I love you, and if you don't go with me, I will crush you. <laughs> it, you this is a very good little joke that is entirely arising from this guy's character. Yeah. And he's one of the four characters, four, you know, uh, personalities that exist in this play. And um, it's a wild one. It's definitely a wild one. And um, I, this is definitely a plot part that is very hard to appreciate um, in reading and in listening. Well, I sometimes in listening because um, Princess Peach of France goes, what plume of feathers is he that I indicted this letter? What vein? What weathercock? Did you ever hear better? Like, so clearly... While Boyer is reading this masterpiece in ass up one own no head one bleh, head up one's own's ass, like they must have been laughing. They must have been like slowly giggling and then howling with mirth at the end. And like it's it's just that kind of oh my god, what is this man saying? kind of vibe is a lot harder to grasp when you're just reading the play. It is, uh, yeah, this play is not a beginner's level Renaissance era text. No. It, it, it is one of those plays where when they do it in production, they do need the actors to sort of physically act out what each part means, what each line means. They can't let the audience just uh, figure it out for themselves. But this also contains the lovely scene, which is Rosaline and Boyette having a little bit of an innuendo off, where Rosaline is saying to Boyette, you are a cuckold, and Boyette is saying, you are a slut. And it's back and forth, back and forth, as much like a carry-on film as possible. 
yeah, uh, it's a it's a choice. Like I read because I don't know how to read it. Like Boyer and Rosaline, like are they like mean to each other or are they kind of being flirty like i mean i get the sense that it's sort of like we're friends uh but we're sort of giving a little bit of a uh, uh we're doing a little bit of sniping back and forth and you know the, the way they're saying so rosaline says you know finally put off and boy it is finally put on it's like they're playing a game of tennis where it's like ah or you know fencing or something like that they're explicitly saying ah touche ah on guard touche touche you've got a hit sir you've got a hit that sort of thing yeah. Um But yeah, it's like there is a lot of um back and forth fans, which is fine, which is cute, which it's nice, but it's just like it it is another one that is hard to read because it's in another language. It's not in another language. This is pretty modern English by scholarly standards. Um but yeah, no, definitely don't give this to teenagers. They will die of boredom. You do need... It is one of those things where the kids might be a bit more interested when they realise this is about sex. <laughs> and and I, do, <laughs> I, I do explicitly like this part because yeah, the joke is that, Rosaline, you are a lady who likes sex. You are a promiscuous slut. That is the joke. And it is not really treated as something that she is that much offended by. This is not like in another play where there's, oh no, her reputation has been slant, is absolutely serious. They're just having good fun here. They can make these jokes with each other. It, As I was saying in, the pre in a previous act, the tone of this play is one in which whatever the step before sex positive is. This is a play where the relations between the sexes is something that no one takes that seriously. It's so nice. It's so cute. It's like, you know, it, it, it scenes like this that make me appreciate that this is, you know, college age idiot friends being idiots with each other. Uh, but also because of Don Armado's existence, like it feels very mean spirited. And I wish that wasn't there. I felt that he is the perfect person to be mean spirited to. Okay, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. If 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 the letter didn't exist, then I um because yeah no at first I was like why is he why is he here why do they bother with him just being harmlessly idiotic and then this letter comes along it's like never mind never mind he deserves to be ridiculed this man is a chauvinist ah anyway uh act and uh, the the key part at the end of this act is. So, but basically what happens at the end of this act is that all of the boys essentially discover each other. One of the boys comes up, he starts reading out his uh, letter about how much he loves this girl. Another one walks in on him and says, aha, I found you. And another one comes in and says, like, aha, I found you. And another one comes in, aha, I found you. And then it seems like Byron has gotten out of it. And Byron spends a long time just sort of pretending that Oh, I've caught all of you. Oh, I remained innocent, but you three. Oh, you three have betrayed our sacred trust. But then Holofernes comes in with the letter. And there's that lo there's a lovely scene where you can t where Byron he he gets the letter, he receives the letter, he reads the letter, and then immediately he tears it up. So that's <laughs> 
that is, uh, and, it's, uh, and it takes him like two lives before he's so ashamed that eventually he's like, oh, yes, yes, I also failed. God damn it. It is very funny. Um, it almost, like, if this was adapted into like a modern play, like, one of these boys will be on like their couch, like, they're all room sharing, they're all like flatmates. One of them's on the couch. One of them's writing a long text of love and like going, hey, girl, like, how are you going? You're like the moon and you're cute. And I really want to go out with you. And I would if it wasn't for this stupid vow that I made with my boys. And then like someone just reads the text from over their shoulder and goes, oh, hey, check out this boy. He's being a little soft boy. Oh, and everyone just like piling on each other from there. and. Byron being the worst possible one until, and then Byron accidentally said his sent his to the group text. <laughs> he accidentally sent it to the group text, uh, or worse, um, it was an email that he accidentally sent to um, his, you know, college professor, his university professor, or um, the tutorial um student and he's like i'm too tired for this and just reply all the uh, uh, thinking about it is awful but then at the very end of this act is the last thing we should point out about this act they all come to buy to byron and say okay we've all admitted we've uh, fallen in love Byron, can you do your sophistry thing and give us a way to justify this to ourselves? And Byron gives a long speech saying, actually, it is the intellectual thing to do to fall in love with a lot of ladies. <laughs> From it's... woman's eyes, this doctrine I derive. They sparkle still the right Promethean fire. They are the books, the arts, the academes that show, contain, and nourish all the world. Else none at all in aught proved excellent. Then fools you were, these women to forswear, or keeping what is sworn, you will prove fools. For wisdom's sake, a word that all men love, or for love's sake, a word that loves all men, or for men's sake, the authors of these women, or women's sake, by whom we men are men, let us once lose our oaths to find ourselves, or else we lose ourselves to keep our oaths. It is religion to be thus forsworn. For charity itself fulfills the law, and who can sever love from charity? So it is actually the right, it's the smart thing to do, to throw away our books and start kissing women. Yeah, like I'm, I was actually really impressed by this um, monologue, because um, like Merchant of Venice is, you know, known for its flagpole, mercy is... Rain the mercy speech, mercy the rains down. Of like, mercy is not strained, yeah. That one, like, um, just that beautiful piece of poetry within that play. And I'm just surprised that, um, this is just as equally good about love. Of okay, it is in the name of sophistry, so they can go and like be, be friendly with these sweet, sweet ladies. Um, so maybe the the context kind of debases it, so to speak, but it's a really good play. It's no, sorry, it's a really good monologue about love and how um, it is an inspiring thing that shouldn't be, 
you know, suppressed um, in the in the for the sake of being stoic little stoic boys. Like it's a great monologue. And Shakespeare just, can't right. help himself. He has to put in, um, here is my work of philosophy in this uh, sex comedy. Yeah, it's it's. <laughs> It's this is a weird place to to find such a gem, and I'm a little bit mad about it. <laughs> Put this gem somewhere else, Shakespeare. Act five. The boys they realize they love these girls, and so they try to ambush the girls into loving them. First, for some reason, by dressing up as Russians. I'm not quite sure. I will admit, I began to get a bit hazy on what was going on in this last act. Maybe you can help me, Sophie. But they go outside and they dress as Russians to chat up these girls. Ah, but the girls know that the men are coming dressed as Russians. And so the girls, they put on veils and they pretend to be each other. So that... Each man is wooing the wrong lady. And then what happens is that Holofernes and Costard and other people come on to do a play within a play. Again, I will admit, even though I am more tolerant of uh, Holofernes and Nathaniel, I will admit I did skip over that. And then at the very end, at the end of this romantic comedy, what happens at the end of a romantic comedy? The men and women get together? No. Because the princess hears that her father is dead and she says, okay, our little naughty, sexy fun times are over. I'm sorry if there are any hard feelings. We just wanted to have a bit of fun, but now I really do need to go home. I have responsibilities. But, you know, men, if we still love you in a year's time, we'll we'll come back. And then (laughs) that's the end of the play. They say 12 months later, we'll see how we'll feel about this. Yep. I think also, yeah, no, I don't know why, but Holofernes and Sir Nathaniel, like, have a little conversation, and I think Moth convinces them with Don Adriano de Amado to do a play for the ladies. I will say that let's just skip over Holofernes and Nathaniel because this, I think this is one of the longest scenes in all of Shakespeare. And I would hope that just so we can discuss it properly, let's skip over this rather extraneous part of it. Yeah, no, Act Act 5, Scene 1 is a useless piece of garbage. Which is why we pass over it in silence. <laughs> uh, but yeah. That's so all of that is act one, scene one. Just act one, scene one is just act five, scene one. Sorry, act five, scene one is just dull, Holofernes, Nathaniel, Amado, and Moff. Just the sassiest, most verbose people in this play in a single place, verbosing at each other. And it's so hard to pass. And it's just they agree to do a play and they agree to become Hercules. For and we, people. And, and with this play within a play, we do get a kind of foresh- not foreshadowing, a kind of early version of what will happen in A Midsummer Night's Dream, where 
they'll be doing a play within a play. And the other characters will be saying, look at this awful stuff. Aha, it's so, it's so bad, it's good. It's almost exactly, they are saying, this is so bad, it's good. Let us sit in the audience and mock it. It's like, it's like a Mystery Science Theatre 3000. We are seeing, the, the play is of people mocking a performance happening in front of them. Yeah. I remember that play from school and I didn't really like it. And I might, just because I found it so tedious and was like, what's the point of having a play within a play? Um, especially if it's in, such in... a good play, why don't you make it a regular old play, Mr. Shakespeare? Exactly. That's my imitation of you, Sophie. <laughs> I think you need to sound a little bit more ridiculous, sir. Why, if you have a play, why not just make a play within a play? Oh! <laughs> oh, that cut deep. I shouldn't have said that. Oh, oh, oh. oh no, that cut deep. Oh. <laughs> Stop, please, no more. Oh. I'm wrong, okay. Just I'm, I will say I'm wrong just to make it stop. As will always be the case. Yes. Right, so Act 5, Scene 2, the ladies make fun of their guests. I do like this because the entire, one of the main jokes with, you know, the, the guys come up and they try to be very, um, they do, they do try to be, uh, you know, give, wooing the ladies. But the ladies, they do this thing where the guys will say some, loving hyperbole they'll say absolutely grand things as you do when you are in love but the ladies will force them to speak on a literal level and this just makes it seem absurd what they're saying like uh, there's one scene where it says and they also make it ridiculous by having the men speak to boyet and boyet speak to the ladies then the ladies speak to boyet and boyet speaks to the men so this extraneous guy even when they can perfectly well hear each other uh, but there is, let me read it out. Uh, the king says, say to her, we have measured many miles to tread a measure with her on this grass. Boyet says, they say they have measured many a mile to tread a measure with you on this grass. And Rosaline says, it is not so. Ask them how many inches is in one mile. If they have measured many, the measure then of one is easily told. And Boyd says, if to come hither you have measured miles and many miles, the princess bids you tell how many inches doth fill up one mile. And Byron says, tell her we measure them by weary steps. Boyd says, she hears herself. And Rosaline says, how many weary steps of many weary miles have you overgone are numbered in the travel of one mile? And Byron says, oh, we number nothing that we spend for you. So he, so... Byron has said, we measure them in weary steps. And Rosalind says, count them. And Byron says, oh, yes, I know I said we measured them, but we haven't measured them, sorry. <laughs> it... I mean, frankly, he should be able to. Like, how many, I don't, okay, I don't know how many inches there are in one mile because I am a metric lady. Um, but, like, they're all scholars. They're all educated. They should know how many. I mean, the joke is that they're not very educated, actually. They're, they were trying to start. They couldn't even get past the first day. Yeah, I mean, that's true. Um, although, and I think this is a bit of a dig uh, about um, 
like how far they've actually come, which is not that far at all. They just came out of their back door, circled the the grounds, and then come as Russians. It is, I suppose, it is them trying to go on the attack. It is them trying to uh, trick the women in a way, maybe maybe make fools of the women, maybe do a sort of a loving ambush of the women. So I've been saying how this is a literalized love metaphor of siege warfare, where the men, usually in the metaphor, the, the, the besieged city is the woman and the men are the soldiers attacking the walls of the city. Whereas in this one, it's the men who are locked in the city and it's the women outside who are besieging the, the men. But at the end of Act 4, when they say, we love them, they, the men, basically say, okay, we are now soldiers. The king says, St. Cupid then, and soldiers to the field. And Byron says, advance your standards and upon them, lords. Pell-mell, down with them. We men are going to take the man's role. We're going to be soldiers and attack these women. But the second they actually come in and try to seduce the women actively, the women know better than them. The women still manage to knock them down. And also, um, the women reacting with, let's go for mock for mock. Um, yeah, so Princess goes, we are wise girls to mock our lovers, so. Rosaline, they are worse fools to purchase mocking, so. That same Byron, I'll torture ere I go. Oh, that I knew he were but in by the week. How I would make him fawn and beg and seek and wait the season, observe the times, and spend his prodigal wits and bootless rhymes and shape his service wholly to my hests. And make him proud. Shakespeare does love to put a mummy dom in his plays. He really does. I think, yeah, no, you're okay. I'm, I'm beginning to see a pattern. I am beginning. It's like Quentin Tarantino and feet, Shakespeare and, and uh, women who like to tease their men. Yeah. Oh, okay, no, I found the one that I was actually looking for. Um, Princess Peach of France. The effect of my intent is to cross theirs. They do it but in mocking merriment, and mock for mock is only my intent. Their several counsels they unbosom shell to love's mistook, and so be mocked withal upon the next occasion that we meet, with visages displayed to talk and greet. Um, and then they um, decide to wear masks, swap their um, tokens, all that jazz. And um, you would think, just pretending to not know would be, you know, mocking enough. It's like, oh, let's see how you go, stud. Let's see how what you think your rhymes will get you kind of thing. But, um, like, we have to remember that the Princess Peach has been placed outside without glamping gear. It's just camping um, with... And, like, she hasn't been welcomed inside the dude's house. And now he has the gall to try and woo her by pretending to be Russians? Like, what kind of left-field galaxy brain idiot does that sincerely? Like, she has every right to believe that this pouty boy has... No sense. Just just no sense. And no sense of decency as well. So, like her going, you're mocking me in such a way 
that I cannot diplomatically go to war with you. And so she just keeps looking at her, her nails and rebuffs every single praise. And I adore it. I love it. 10 out of 10. And then, then we come to the oddly sad ending of the play, the oddly sad ending of this comedy where she learns that her dad is dead. And that's why she needs to leave. And the uh, so like the queen, the king says, "How fares your Majesty?" The queen says, "Now the princess, who is now the queen, boy, I will away tonight." And the king says, "Madam, not so. I do beseech you stay." And the queen says, "Prepare, I say, uh, thank you, gracious lords, for all your fair endeavours, and entreat out of a new sad soul that you vouchsafe in your rich wisdom to excuse or hide the liberal opposition of our spirits." If overboldly we have borne ourselves in the converse of breath, your gentleness was guilty of it. Farewell, worthy lord, a heavy heart bears not a nimble tongue. Excuse me so, coming too short of thanks, for my great suit is so easily obtained. So, you know, they've had all this fun, but now they're saying, look, uh, uh, but seriously, folks, if we uh, hurt you, then, you know, we both entered into this on good terms. We were having fun. But right now I have serious matters to attend to. Let's stop the flirting right here before we all go home. And then what happens, and I do like what happens next, which is basically them saying that, you know, the queen says, OK, king, if you really love me, 12 months from now, lock yourself up. And study for 12 months. If you've done that by in 12 months time, I'll marry you. And then the others ones say that, OK, let's see how we feel in 12 months. And then something like uh, Rosaline says, Byron, you're a cynical little shit. Byron, you are a person who just keeps on making jokes about how pointless the world is. Go and work in a hospital. Be a jester in a hospital, Byron. Use Put your life to some good work. If you do that for 12 months, then in 12 months time, I will marry you. And what I like about this is that this is one of the most mature views of love in Shakespeare. There is no love at first sight. There's a bit of, you know, infatuation. I'd like to talk to that lady a bit uh, at first sight. But at the end, it's like, OK, we've had a bit of fun. Give it a year. Come back in a year. Then we'll see how we feel about each other. Yeah. I mean, there's a little bit of foreshadowing um, at the very beginning of, scene, of Act 5, Scene 2. Um, something about Ros uh, Catherine, I, and a shrewd and unhappy gallows too. So Catherine, one of the faceless ladies that isn't Rosaline, um, he made her melancholy, sad and heavy, and so she died, has she been light, like you, of such a merry, nimble, stirring spirit, she might have been a grandam where she died, and so may you, for a light heart lives long. Rosalind says, what's your dark meaning, mouse, of this light word? A light condition in a beauty dark. We need more light to find your meaning out. You'll mar the light by taking it in snuff. Therefore, I'll darkly end the argument. Look what you do. You do it still the dark. So do not you, for you are a light wench. Is it? And it's just like... <laughs> it's like are you trying to slut shame me? Is it, are you trying to slut shame me or something? It's like, no, it's more of a, like... It's more of... It's like, hey, like, you can't just take things seriously, you know? Because... Jokes 
if you have a light load in your heart, it won't keep you heavy and down, just like how it killed my sister. And I'm like, Catherine, Catherine, where did that come from? Girl. Lots of mean girls sniping. Oh, and on the point of this being the most mature ending, where it's like, oh, yes, we were just... I do one of the I do like this play because as as my reading of it is, which is that the tone of this play is that this is the step before sex positive. This is like, you know, flirting, that's fine. Having a bit of fun between men and women, that is utterly fine. And the so like the queen says, we have received your letters full of love, your favors, the ambassadors of love, and in our maiden council rated them at courtship, pleasant jest and courtesy as bombast and as lining to the time. But more devout than this in our respects have we not been, and therefore met your loves in their own fashion, like a merriment. And Dumaine says, Our letters, madam, showed much more than jest. And Longueville says, So did our looks. Ah, but Rosaline says, We did not quote them so. And the king says, Now at the latest minute of the hour, grant us your loves. And the queen says, a time, methinks, too short to make a world without end bargain in. And this is the most mature view of love in Shakespeare. Let's not get married at the end of the day. Let's, let's, you, you've asked me to give you our love in one minute. No, no, we need to think a bit more about marriage before we jump into it. It's like just saying, look, this is a bombast and lying to the time. This is a merriment. We're just having some fun here. You're taking it too seriously. We'll come back in a year. I think um, also it kind of calls back, kind of harkens back to Ferdinand thinking he lives in a fairy tale, thinking he lives in a place where scholars can be scholars by having a vibe and not actually really doing some studying or studying in such a way that is genuinely destructive to the human psyche and, you know, social um, aspect. And so, like, he thinks, like, now at the latest minute of the hour, grant us your loves. Let this be a happy ending. Let this be the moment, despite your dad's death just now, um, be the fairy tale book ending that everyone expects. And Princess of, of France just like looks away from her nails and goes, are you kidding me, boy? And you get the sense that she is subtly trying to say that no, you're going, you're, we're not going to get married because, you know, you know, he has sworn at the beginning of the play, he has sworn three years, three years. I am going to study without any woman present. And at the first day, the first day he breaks that and the queen to him makes the condition that, OK, we'll we'll maybe we'll get married if for the next 12 months you go to some forlorn and naked hermitage, remote from all pleasures of the world. There stay until the twelve celestial signs have brought about the annual reckoning. So she is saying, okay, you know that thing? You know that thing you couldn't even do for one day? Do that for twelve months. So you get the sense that she is basically trying to essentially force him to recognise that this isn't going to work, that he can't even do this. He won't be able to do this. That or um, she's giving him another fairy tale to um, subscribe to, I guess. If you really do want to love me, then B, 
be a fairy tale somewhere else where it's actually hard and you have to work for it. And if you don't, we'll call it there. I won't expect any love from you. You won't expect any love from me. And it's like she, it's like that thing where it's like, I, when I marry, I want to marry a man, not a boy. Go and do something with your life. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> and this, it does, that sort of does uh, follow along with, you know, Byron and Rosaline, where Rosaline is saying to him, Look, I know you're the sort of person who doesn't like to take things seriously. You are cynical about everything. Why don't you work in a hospital? Find something that actually makes the world a better place rather than just being the sort of cynical person who jokes about everything. Put your humour to some good use for once in your life. And Byron's like, to move wild laughter in the throat of death? It cannot be. It is impossible. Mirth cannot move a soul in agony. And I was like, well, why, that's the way to choke a gibbling spirit, whose influence is begot of that loose grace which shallow laughing hearers give to fools. A jest's prosperity lies in the ear of him that hears it, never in the tongue of him that makes it. Then, if sickly ears, deft with the clamours of their own dear groans, will hear your idle scorns, continue then, and I will have you and that fault withal. But if they will not, Throw away that spirit, and I shall find you empty of that fault, right joyful of your reformation. And Byron's like, a twelve-month. Well, before what will befall, I'll just a twelve-month in a hospital. There are multiple ways to read this, where one way is that they are giving them a task that they know the guys will fail, and that will just say, okay, we are ending our relationship here in a way that we don't need to explicitly say we are ending the relationship. We are giving you something that you cannot do. Or it could be that, okay, we've had some fun here. If you want to show us you're serious, do something serious for us. Yeah. And, um, like, in Shakespeare, Al William has been making enough um, sequels and prequels um, that it makes sense in my mind that from this ending... Yeah, there might have been a Love's Labours 1 later. When, you know, people, maybe it's um, the main character is the princess with a name this time. Please, I wish it was Peach, but it's not. I wish it was. Um, and, you know, she's just going, yeah, I'm, I'm oh, sorting no, out Sophie, my... I found two pages stuck together. I'm opening the... Oh, it's Peach! Yay! <laughs> but anyway, and, like, the play is just her finally taking off her... Um, morning gowns and she has to find a husband now and she's pissed about it because you know like she's perfectly capable of ruling by herself and, and like she ex and then you know just someone wanders in um and goes hey i did the thing that you told me to do and she's like i don't i'm busy mr stranger i can't talk to you right now i am busy trying to save my um country um get in line if you want to be my suitor um kind of i guess kind of like um odysseus did odysseus do that kind of uh, not sure <laughs> it's, it's one of the greek heroes that was like hey i'm back um but pretends to be um a peasant or a wanderer yes, he come, odysseus comes back 
and Athena dresses him like an old beggar. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, basically that, but loves Labor's one, and all, and there's like three three old men who are actually just Ferdinand, Byron, uh, Longueville, and the other one. <laughs> I mean. It's always, it's a t- always tempting to think of what was Love's Labour's one. Was it a sequel? Was it something else? I do find that this does end in an appropriate way. I I honestly think, okay, end it there. I in no way think that this will be improved by a sequel. I think a good, ambiguous ending. Not the sort of ending you expect from the Elizabethan era, but okay, here's an ambiguous, somewhat downer ending to this comedy. Is it a comedy if it ends sad? And also, I don't like that Don Adriano de Amado is the last person who speaks in it. And he has a sort of somewhat um, uh, melancholy thing to say. Like, the the embodiment of winter has said something about, oh, how awful it is now. And the wor- and then Armado says, the words of Mercury are harsh after the songs of Apollo. You that way, we this way. It's like... It's like uh, it's like if at the end of Seinfeld, Kramer just said some brief, bittersweet thing about the way of the world. And he closes the pub and the camera pans away like a person leaving for the last time. And this is like, no, no, I, I don't want purple prose Armado, the, the wither vein cockerel, to have something nice. <laughs> that was Love's Labor's Lost. Love's Labor's Lost. A pleasant surprise, Sophie? I mean, the more we talked about it, the more I liked it. Because my very first impression was this is very mean spirited. Because um, you know, there's a lot of people um, making making fun of each other. Um, you know, they're playing tricks on each other that aren't necessarily, you know, a, like a good prank is one that doesn't hurt someone. And there were, you know, feelings hurt um, from this. And um, the two, God, the two awful um, professors and. It's a comedy that that ends sadly. So I'm just like, I don't, I don't know if I like this. But you know, re-listening to it, talking about it, just makes me go, okay, okay. It's it's not as bad. It's not as like wet blanket as I had first initially thought. This is a this is one that is worth chewing on. I still prefer um, comedy of errors. That's probably because it's genuinely straightforwardly funny. Well, this yeah. one's a little bit more nuanced, and, and I like also it. the shortest of his plays. Uh, that's true. That too. Well, you'll like if you don't like a comedy that ends sadly, you'll love next month because we have a tragedy that ends sadly: Romeo and Juliet. Oh no! And after Romeo and Juliet, we'll do that classic of incest literature. Tis pity she's a whore. What? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think I vaguely remember you mentioning it um, for your book club. You very craftily moved to Japan before I could force it on you. 
Yeah, I think that was what happened. Okay, so now you're just going to force it on me for this podcast. Cool, 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 cool. Yes. (laughs) But Sophie, what was something you didn't like about this play? Uh, I did not like Holofernes. Is that how you how you say his name? I assume. But I think that's very much a. He's not very fun to read, but he's very fun to listen to and hear, listen to and like look at. Um, doing his um pretentious snobbery. Um, for the sumptuous eyes. Um. Uh, yeah, I didn't really like Holofernes. I didn't really like, um, Armados. Not a huge fan of Costard, either. They sound, they they felt a little too samey, and also, they were also exactly the kind of people that I just don't like in general. So having them exist, uh, yeah, just... And as for what I didn't like, I, I have to agree. What I didn't like was Holofernes and Nathaniel. Yeah, they're meant to be insulting a kind of teacher, but a kind of teacher who has not existed for about a couple hundred years, or at the very least only exists in some very upper-class private schools. Yeah, he's a niche niche dude now. I guess there's some novelty in that as a result. And as for what we liked, Sophie, what is one thing you did like? Princess. I love her. I wish to be her. Princess is beautiful. Both inside and out. And she's not afraid to admit it. Yes. She She's... knows it. She's got it. And she's beautiful. And I want her. And what I liked about this was the ending. I did like this is a comedy where basically at the end the girls just say, I mean, I mean, look, we... Yes, we were flirting. Yes, we were having fun. But you, you didn't seriously think that meant something serious, did you? You want to marry us. Uh, let, let's give that a year, at least a year to cool off. <laughs> but that was Shakespeare and Pals, episode 16, A Love's Labour's Lost, a play that now that we've read it, you'll never have to. You can just repeat our opinions to everyone else who asks you about this play. You have some very boring friends. Next time, see you for Romeo and Juliet. Thank you for listening to Shakespeare and Pals. A list of references to the work cited in today's episode can be found in the episode description. The opening, interstitial, and closing music of this podcast is a public domain recording of Henry Purcell's The Fairy Queen, sourced from newsopen.org. Thank you for listening.